You shall not make for yourself a, a carved image or any likeness of anything that is in heaven above or that is in the earth beneath or that is in the water under the earth. You shall not bow down to them or serve them, for I, the Lord your God, am a jealous God, visiting the iniquity of the fathers on the children to the third and fourth generation of those who hate me, but showing steadfast love to thousands of those who me, who love me and keep my commandments. Exodus 24, 4 through 6. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, thank you for the law. Thank you for these, these truths that we see and and let us not miss that, Lord, that the law is beautiful because it draws us closer to you and closer to Jesus, Lord. So I pray that you just uh, speak through Ryan to us today. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Amen. If you're new here, uh, we're in a series of messages where we've been walking through uh, what, what's known as the Ten Commandments. Uh, that, that language is not necessarily in the Bible. It's called the Ten Words in the Scripture because really what the Ten Commandments are all about are about God's faithfulness to his people and revealing himself to his people. And so over the last few weeks, we've, we've looked at how important it is to understand the context that those Ten Commandments that we call were given. They were given after God had rescued his people. Even if you look at verse 1, chapter 20, verse 1, what does it say? It says, it, it says uh, b- basically because I've delivered you out of Egyptian slavery, out of the hand of Pharaoh, let me tell you about who I am and what the good life in my kingdom looks like. And so we've looked at the role of the, the law, the moral law, and the role uh, in the life of the believer. And it's been, it's been great. And so last week we looked at the first command, uh, which was to have no other gods before the one true God. The next, uh, the next three commands are actually all about our relationship with God as well, our vertical relationship with Him. So today we're looking at this idea of a graven image and what that means. This command isn't necessarily about worshiping false gods, but here's the nuance here. It's about worshiping the one true God in a false way. That's the nuance here that, that, that God really wants to get after. That there, there is proper worship of God and there's improper worship. And it makes all the difference in how you see God and how you worship Him. So what, what you see when, when you worship the one true God in the false way by making images is that you actually uh, do this. You take God and all that He is and all His majesty and, and all of His glory and all of His goodness and you shrink Him. And my heart for you today as we look at this Scripture and we mine it out together is that we would see and receive all of the goodness that God has for us in the person and work of Jesus Christ. In 2006, a marvelous piece of cinematography was produced entitled Talladega Nights. <laughs> Talladega Nights is a, is a movie where redneck NASCAR driver Ricky Bobby, played by the comedian Will Ferrell, and his family offer a prayer around the table. It's the best scene in the movie. And it, it, it couldn't, I'm going to step out on a limb here, it couldn't describe the human nature better in my opinion. Here's what happens around the table as they're eating a sponsored dinner by KFC and Powerade. um, Ricky's partner, Cal, says, as he's praying, I like to picture Jesus in a tuxedo t-shirt. Because here's what it says, I'm formal, but I like to party. Cal says, I like to party, and I like my Jesus to party too. Shortly after that, uh, 
uh, Will Ferrell's, Ricky Bobby's sons are praying as well. Walker and Texas Ranger are their names. And they say, I like to picture Jesus as a, as a, as a ninja fighting off evil samurai. You see, Ricky's sons like to imagine Jesus as the conquering king that, that, uh, that just took care of business. And, and Ricky, as he's praying, he can't seem to picture Jesus anything other than an eight-pound, six-ounce baby with a gold fleece diaper. He can't seem to see it any other way. And it honestly is so funny that you almost miss the truth that it reveals about us. We've all, you see, we've all got this preferred image of God in our minds that brings comfort to us. And my question is this, how do you picture Jesus today? Because our temptation is to look at this command to make no graven images and say, look, I don't have any idols that I'm bowing down to in my house that I know about, and to just dismiss it. But the thing is, is that this was one of the commands that Israel struggled with more deeply than any of the other ones. They just kept being drawn back to, to carving, crafting an image of God to worship. And God says it's so dangerous in our, in our pursuit of getting the fullness of God. It's so dangerous in that regard. So here's our big idea today for where we're going in Exodus 20, verses 4-6. through six. It's this. Carving images of God for worship will always conceal more of Him than it will reveal. Let me say it again. Carving images of God for worship will always conceal more of God than it will reveal. And see, the pursuit is that if you had an image of God, maybe you could worship better, right? How many of you have ever wondered, if I could just walk with Jesus, just like those disciples would, I would follow Him more deeply. He's saying this, that that what happens when we carve something out to worship God with, this isn't about worshiping false gods, it's about worshiping the one true God in a false way, that we actually undermine the work of God and we miss what He wants to do for us. So I want to look at this through three lenses, this big idea today. And the three lenses are this. False worship, just kind of what it is and what it looks like maybe today in our culture. True worship. And then there's also this caveat at the end of this one. The legacy of our worship. So let's dig in together to false worship. This is the danger of carving images of God. So let me read again Exodus 20, verse 5 for us. Here's what the, the Scriptures say. You shall not make for yourself a carved image or, key words here, any likeness of anything that is in heaven above or that is in the earth beneath or that is in the water under the earth. Notice the language here. This, this language eerily reflects what's going on in creation in the early chapters of Genesis. As God creates the world out of nothing. Water and land, sea. He creates everything together. And He's saying basically with this command that nothing that I've created is a sufficient medium of your worship to me. Now, I know you might not like the mystery of not knowing what I look like and, and who I am exactly. I know you might not like that mystery. But nothing in all of creation is sufficient for your, as a medium for your worship for me. I mean, you could think about Greek mythology or other polytheistic religions when we hear this command, you know. And so we tend to dismiss it. The Baal of the, the Canaanites or Chemosh of the Moabites or Dagon of the Philistines or Buddha or Confucius or Muhammad or any other god that is polytheistic in its nature. The list could go on and on and on and on. Yet I would suggest that we all have a propensity toward carving and crafting 
our own images of God. Exodus 32. So what's happening, what's happening with Moses is that he's on, he's on the mount receiving the instructions of the Lord. And he's receiving the law. And down at the base of the mount are the people of Israel that have just been delivered out of captivity from the Pharaoh's hand in a mighty way with an outstretched arm as the Lord draws them through the Red Sea. And what's happening in Exodus 32 as Moses is up on the mount is that the people of God are crafting a golden bull made of golden earrings and rings because they wanted to see God. They wanted something they could see. Forty days was just too long for them to wait in the mystery of who God is. And, and the image that they made was so interesting because it was a golden bull. And I've often wondered why would they make this golden bull? And maybe there's some scholars that could tell us a little bit more about that. But a bull for me is a sign of power, is a, is a sign of get, getting things done, making things happen, is a powerful cre- creature. And so what you see in this bull that they made is they wanted their God not to be like a samurai ninja or a baby in a golden fleece diaper that we talked about earlier, or a man in a tuxedo t-shirt. <laughs> but they wanted their God to resemble power because that's who they thought of their God to be. They had an image of the God who delivered them from Pharaoh, and they wanted to worship the one true God in that way. Now, let me remind you of what we defined as idolatry last week, which is worshiping another God. We used Tim Keller's quote out of Counterfeit Gods. It's beautiful. Here's what it says. He he asked the question, what is an idol? He says this, it's anything more important to you than God. Anything that absorbs your heart and imagination more than God. Anything you seek to give you what only God can give. And so what what I kind of see from this command is really there's two types of false worship that we can have. We can worship created things as we're worshiping the one true God, like he talks about, things that have been created in earth and under the earth and the sea and anything in all of creation, that's one. But the other thing that, that, that this scripture includes is how we worship God in our imagination of we, who we think God is. So I want to look at those two things quickly here. So we'll call them idols of the hand and idols of the mind. Idols of the hand, this is carving God out of creation. Uh, so you, you might not have posters of Hecate, the frog goddess of fertility in your bedroom. At least I don't know anyone that does, okay? But maybe you've got posters of athletes or, or, or sports teams or, or superheroes or maybe you're, you're continuously looking at your stock market figures, which I heard it was a bad week this week. Maybe, maybe your life revolves around some friendships, and, and, and whenever something threatens those friendships, you just lose it, and life isn't worth living anymore. Maybe those images are the mediums that you choose to worship God through, or maybe it could be a certain appearance, a personal appearance, that you would say, if I don't look like this, then life isn't worth living. Or you can project that on others. If my spouse, my significant other, my friends don't look like this, then life isn't worth living. Or maybe you could worship experiences. For instance, you may spend way too much time curating the perfect Instagram feed for your friends and family members to see about your 
perfect life. Maybe that is your false worship that you offer up, the image that you bow down to, is this edited, photoshopped, curated life that is not real. Maybe that's it for you, or maybe it's more idols of the mind for you. Here's what the scriptures say in Exodus um, 20. is He's talking about worship, and he says, any likeness of anything. So that's kind of like a junk drawer term. Basically anything other than the one true God, right? Any thought other than thoughts about the one true God, anything. So this, we take this to include our imaginations, and, and many scholars agree with that. I mean, let me just draw a picture for you here. Imagine that Megan and I go out to dinner together, and it's like one of those dinners that's like a couple grocery bills dinner. You know what I'm talking about? It's like a good one. And we're not married yet. You know, we're engaged. I know it was a really short season, but we did have dinner together during that time. Uh, we were engaged for four months. It was quick. It was great. But let's just, we're out to dinner together, and we're getting to know each other. And, you know, we're sitting at the candlelit dinner at the top of the stratosphere in Las Vegas, having a nice meal together. I'm trying not to think about how much money I'm spending. And, and we're, we're sitting there, and she looks across the table at me, and she says, you know, Ryan, there are some things that I want to share with you uh, before we get married. I want to share more of my life, more of my story with you. I want to open up more of my heart to you so that we can be more united together. I don't want to keep anything about me back from you. And imagine in that moment of vulnerability and transparency and beauty, I say, you know, eh, I'm good. I, really, I'm good. I mean, can you pass the asparagus? I mean, could you imagine being in that moment and not wanting to know more of my, my future spouse, to just say, you know, I like actually this image of you uh, that I've gotten out the best, because, you know, it's all of the good parts of you. I just love it. And there's nothing that I would change about you. There's nothing about you that, that I don't like. I mean, there's nothing a part of your history or your story that, that isn't beautiful. I mean, I just prefer to know that version of you, Megan. Now, if, if that were how that went down, would you say that she should marry me? No. Why would she want to be in relationship with someone? That's not a relationship. That's a fantasy, isn't it? Church, this is exactly what we do when we worship the one true God in a false way, is we say, I only want to know and worship these things about God at the expense of all these other things that I can't understand or don't fit into my categories or my boxes of who I imagine God to be. Maybe for you, you, you worship different attributes of God, but not all of them. And, and I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to step out here a little bit. You, you know, maybe you've got an Amazon Prime Jesus, okay? An Amazon Prime Jesus, what's that? You know, Amazon Prime, free two-day shipping, my schedule, my life. If it's not here, I better get it for free kind of life. Well, the Amazon Prime Jesus, what's it do? It conflates two characteristics about God. It, it conflates and confuses them. So life, prosperity, and abundance, saying, okay, my life should be you know, beautiful and abundant. I shouldn't have to experience pain and grief and, and, and the goodness of God is ever before me. The Jeremiah 29, 11 verse without the uh, bondage in Babylonian captivity. You know what I'm talking about? The one that we put on coffee cups and it's maybe in your living room. You can keep it up, I promise. It's okay. Um, but we forget that verse 11 came 70 years after the verses before it, Right? So, so it's, it's, a, it's, a, it's a view of Jesus, it's a view of God that says, I want the abundance without the long-suffering part of Jesus. 
I want Jeremiah 29, 11 with Isaiah 53. Maybe that's how you view God, or maybe you've got a Judge Judy Jesus, okay? What's a Judge Judy Jesus? It's the image of God that conflates the justice and judgment of God on one hand with the love of God on the other. The two can't live in harmony together. So, so what we see is, is this. Maybe you see injustice in the world. You know, a a reckless, irresponsible sinner causing deep pain to people, right? We see that all around. I could tell you different examples of how that happens, both individually in your life and corporately between different groups of people, different nations of people. We see that happen in history. It's the story of history. And we say this, I wish God would just wipe them off of the face of the earth. I just wish they'd get what they deserve. So we say in those moments, and then someone confronts us about our own sin, our hateful words, our judgmental hearts, and our deceitfulness, and we say, well, at least I'm not like him, right? I'm not that bad. And so what we do is, is in one instance, we, we withhold love from the sinner that really deserves it. In another instance, we withhold judgment from our own lives when we get caught holding the bag. So Judge Judy Jesus. So It's just different ways that we tend to shrink God by imaging him in ways that are not the fullness of who he is. J.I. Packer uh, is helpful in in the the little book that he wrote about the Ten Commandments. He says, how do we tend to shrink God? Here's Here's the quote he gives. No statement starting with, this is how I like to think of God, should ever be trusted. An imagined God will always be quite imaginary and unreal. So according to Packer, if you want to know how you're tempted to shrink God, the question to ask yourself, just maybe this afternoon or right now, is this, how do I like to think about God? And whatever comes up from your kind of gut level response is probably how you are prone to shrink who God is. So I want to challenge you to do that because we all shape him in different ways. We all like different attributes about God without the fullness of who God is. The second thing I want to look at is this, is, is true worship. So we know that we're not supposed to image God in any way, that, that that's not our place, but we're to worship him because we'll shrink him if we do that, and we'll miss the fullness of who he is. But what is true worship? Well, I, I think, I think it, it, we see it from Exodus 20 here. When, when he says not to imagine, not to create or craft any other God than the one True God, we see that it's reserved for someone else. It's reserved for an image that will perfectly describe who God is. And I, and I would say that it's the person in the work of Jesus Christ. There's a story uh, about a, a British poet uh, from the 19, early 1900s. His name was W.H. Auden. And his story is this. He grew up in the church, I think the Anglican church. And as he was growing up, in the church, he was growing, you know, in wisdom and knowledge and stature, all those things that we hope that our kids will grow into. But at one point, he decides that this is not for him. And his life became very difficult. And he had some struggles with sin and design and, and things of that nature. Even he, he would say that, that uh, he struggled deeply with same-sex attraction. And he didn't really know what to do with that. But toward the end of his life, he had an encounter with God that, that brought him back into the fold of the church. And here's, he's, he's a poet, and here's what he wrote in, a, in an article um, that, where they were asking about his poetry. He says this, I believe in Jesus because he fulfills 
none of my dreams. Let that sit with you for a second. I believe in Jesus because he fulfills none of my dreams. He, he is, in every respect, the exact opposite of what he would be if I could have made him in my own image. Hmm. Autumn was so thankful that God didn't leave him to his own design, his own worship, his own instincts of who he imagined God to be. So who is this image of God? We see throughout history that it is the perfect Lord Jesus Christ. Think, think about it like this. Also in the book of Exodus, you know, while Moses is receiving the commands to not worship through any graven images, Moses is also receiving instructions in how to build the tabernacle and the instruments that will go in the tabernacle. Now, if you've read anything about these in, in the, the book of Exodus, there is quite an ornate design for a tent in the middle of the wilderness. You can read about the different types of threads and the different instruments of worship and the different places in the tabernacle and all of those things. I mean, in, in, in one part of it, uh, the, the place where it was believed that God dwelled was this thing called the Ark of the Covenant. Maybe you are familiar with those words, not from Indiana Jones, though. Um, the Ark of the Covenant was the place that the, the, the two tablets of the, the ten words would, would be kept. It, it would be where uh, some manna uh, from their, their time in the wilderness that God used to nourish and provide for them would be kept as well. Somehow it didn't go bad, crazy. But then also Aaron's staff would be kept in there, which was a sign of how God led his people. And it's this really ornate box. It's made out, it's wrapped in gold, has gold poles. And then, then on top of it, there are these two cherubim on each side of it. And it makes kind of a little seat. And um, <laughs> it makes a little seat that's called the mercy seat. And the mercy seat is where God... Above the mercy seat is where God hovered. His presence hovered, the scriptures say. But the interesting thing was there was no one on the mercy seat. When you think of a seat, you think that someone should sit in the seat, right? So it's interesting. So Exodus 25, 22 says this. There, there I will be with you, and from above the mercy seat, from between the two cherubim that are on the ark of the testimony, I will speak with you about all that I give you in commandment for the people of Israel. So the mercy seat doesn't have anyone sitting on it, but God hovers over top of it. And I would propose that the mercy seat has no one sitting on it because that is reserved for the person in the work of Jesus Christ. Jesus is the perfect image of God. Listen to uh, Colossians chapter 1, starting in verse 15. Paul's writing to this church in Colossae, and he's describing and talking to them about the image of God and the supremacy of Jesus Christ. And this idea of image is so interesting before we get there. Genesis 1, 26 and 27, the scriptures say in creation that God made us in his image. He made us in his own image. And so Colossians 1 says something interesting. That God sent the image of God, of himself, in the person and the work of Jesus Christ. And he did that because the image that we bear is a distorted image because of sin. So not only were we made to worship the one true God through the person and work of Jesus, the image of God, the exact imprint of his nature, as Hebrews chapter 1 says, but we were also made to behold glory from God. Colossians 1.27 says that, that it's Christ in you, 
the hope of glory. So we're all wrapped up in the glory of God in the image, in the, in, in the person of Jesus. Let me read the full text here from Colossians 1. It says this, he's the image of the invisible God, the firstborn of all creation, meaning we were patterned after Jesus. For in him, in Jesus, the whole fullness of deity dwells bodily. All of God exists in Jesus. And he says, oh, and by the way, because of faith, you have been filled in him, who is the head of all rule and authority. Jesus is the image of God that we've been waiting for. So when we shrink God and we put anything other than Jesus in that place, we miss out on the fullness of who God is for our lives. I mean, let me just give you an example. Think about how Jesus was crucified. The Jews were waiting for a Messiah to come. And, and they, you know, the, the, on uh, Palm Sunday, they, they, they crowned him king, you know. You know, Hosanna in the highest. The Messiah's come. He's finally here to redeem us. But they had this graven image of who their Messiah would be as you look at the rest of the Passion Week. He, he would be a conquering king, but he wouldn't be a conquering king in the time frame that they thought that he would be a conquering king. And so what you see is that he would free them from Roman oppression. He wouldn't free them from Roman oppression, rather, immediately. So Jesus shows up as this suffering servant, and they didn't have a category for a Messiah that wouldn't free them from Roman oppression immediately. Instead, Jesus comes to set them free from their true captor, sin and death, through the work of the enemy in the world. But, but, at, but at the end of the Passion Week, what you see is that Israel would have preferred to have been freed from Roman oppression than from sin. And every time that we make a graven image, something that we worship, other than the one true God and the person and the work of Jesus, we choose the same thing. We choose the same thing. Hey, God, could you just set me free from this circumstance here and still let me dwell in sin? We don't get to call the shots. I had a youth pastor uh, my last year of high school who said, he said, hey, bro, this ain't Burger King. You can't have it your way. And that always stuck with me, right? Because it makes sense. I'm a, you know, I'm a simple guy. I understand fast food. And, uh, and that makes sense to me. But so many times we want, to, we want to maximize one of God's attributes in one area and yet minimize and distort it in the other. But what you see in perfect harmony in the life and the work of Jesus is he is, he's loving sinners on one hand, he's flipping over tables in the temple on the other hand. He's casting out demons on one hand, he's rebuking Pharisees on the other hand. He's, he's dwelling with the, un, the most unlovable people and sinners on the face of the earth on one hand, and, and, he's, and he's even loving the older brother types on other hands. You can't put Jesus in a box, you can't put God in a box, because as soon as we do that, we miss who he really is. We miss who he really is. That's why we have to live in the mystery of who Jesus is. And one of the things that's been wrecking me this weekend has been um, Daniel chapter 3. Daniel chapter 3 is the story of um, the four men in the fire. Four men in the fire. Or you might know it as Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. And 
Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego had received the law of God. They were living in Babylonian captivity under King Nebuchadnezzar. And King Nebuchadnezzar creates this 90-foot golden statue. And he says, everybody's got to worship it. This is, this, is, this is how you know whose authority you're under. You've got to worship this. And let me just read for you quickly um, what they say. Because I, I was trying to tell Megan yesterday about it. But I, I was so emotional about the courage of these men in the work of Jesus in their life, ultimately. Here's, here's what the scripture says. This is Daniel chapter 3, verse 16. Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego answered the king, and they said this. O Nebuchadnezzar, we have no need to answer you in this matter. If this be so, our God whom we serve is able to deliver us from the burning, fiery furnace, and he will deliver us out of your hand, O king. But if not, be it known to you, O king, that we will not serve your gods or worship the golden image that you have set up. And the story goes on where he, the king gets so mad and frustrated that he turns up the fire so hot that it kills his own guys as they throw Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego in as they're bound up. And then the king sees this amazing image he sees not three men bound in the fire being incinerated, but he sees four men dancing in the fire because the fire has not harmed them. Some people believe that that is a Christophany, an, an image, an appearance of Jesus in the Old Testament. We don't know if it's that or an angel, but it's definitely from God. Church, my heart for you and my heart for myself is that we would not bow down to the golden image no matter how good the promise seems. No matter how good it seems to worship God in a way that he's not called us to, we wouldn't bow down. We would trust God in the fire. We would trust that he would deliver us no matter what the cost is because the promise that whatever image it is that you're tempted to worship is making to you is a lie. And the person in the work of Jesus uproots it and shows it for what it is, that it'll lead to death. But we see the things that we think that we're so afraid of, the death that we're so afraid of is the life that God actually gives us in his son. Lastly, the legacy of our worship. So the last two kind of sometimes conflicting verses of what seem to be conflicting um, of this commandment, what we see um, is, is this idea about your, your worship, the way that you worship God will not end with you for better or for worse, that there will be a multiplying effect of God's glory through your life somehow, for better or for worse. And here, So let me remind you of what Exodus says here. He says, you shall not bow down to them or serve them, those false graven images. For I, the Lord your God, am a jealous God, visiting iniquity of the fathers on the children to the third and fourth generation of those who hate me, but showing steadfast love to thousands of those who love me and keep my commands. God is a jealous God. That, that, is a, that is a word that we typically only think of in a negative connotation. We think, when we think of jealousy, we think about maybe uh, an insecure employer that's, that's threatened by anybody more competent than them in their craft, or maybe an insecure relationship, whether it's a uh, husband and wife or some friends where they're threatened by other relationships with other people because of, they're afraid that what they love might be lost. That's how we typically think about 
jealousy. We typically don't think about jealousy the way that God's talking about it here, which is not in this posture of insecurity, but in this posture of power. It, it's this covenant-keeping love that, that, that is jealous for our hearts. It's jealous for our affections. It's jealous for all that we are. It's, it's where we see that all of who God is uh, is, is his deepest desire to, to, to give to us and to pour into our lives. He's jealous for that and for me and for you. He's constantly wooing us and calling us out of our lifeless pursuit of dead gods and worship to abundant living through his ways. That's what he shows us here. He's jealous. And the picture that I want to give you about the jealousy of God is it, there's a blessing and there's a curse in this. There's let me define it another way that might be helpful too. There's baggage, which are the things that we don't want. And then there's luggage, the things that we pick up that we do want, right? You've been at the airport before, your luggage hasn't been there, you're frustrated, right? So there's baggage and there's luggage. Let's look at it this way. First, first let's look at uh, generational baggage. These are the curses of false worship. So the, the, the passage here from 25, Exodus 25, talks about this idea of generational sin, so let me read it to you, and then I'm going to read to you what seems to be a contradictory verse. That'll be fun, right? Exodus 25, visiting the iniquity of the fathers on their children to the third and the fourth generation of those who hate me. Uh, Deuteronomy 24, 16. Fathers shall not be put to death because of their children, nor children be put to death because of their fathers. Each one shall be put to death for his own sin. So the lie about generational sin is is this, oh, because my parents were like this, this is what I'm going to become, there's nothing I can do about it. That, that's the lie about generational sin. The key phrase here is all about worship and what you do with sin. That's how generational sin goes forward. Children, so here's the big thing you got to realize about this. Children absorb false worship and its curses by taking on not just the family name, but the sin of their parents. And because children live in the home of their parents, they're more than likely to pick up on the sins of their parents. But that's the danger of the generational sin here that he's speaking of. And what this passage teaches us is, you know, you, 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 we see it go both ways. So you see King David, who was a man after God's own heart, he had his uh, he had his weak spots as well, but by God's grace, he repented and trusted God uh, with his life and with his sin, and he turned from his sin. But you see his son Solomon, who's an absolute basket case, who just chases anything that he wants. He's the richest man that's ever lived. He's got concubines. I mean, he's got everything. He, the book of Ecclesiastes tells you about his pursuit of, uh, of graven images, basically. And he says, it's all vanity. It's all meaningless. None of it gave me life when I wanted it to. And then others of you might have a story more like mine where, where you know, your parents had their sin and somehow, by God's grace, you broke out of that pattern and became the first Christian in your family. That might be your story, your journey as well. So it's not cut and dry, but what the scriptures teach us is there is a propensity for children to be drastically affected by their parents' sin, but also to to likely pick up on that unless the grace of God intervenes in their lives. That's, that's the warning that he offers here for us. That the father's hate for true worship of God becomes the son's hate for true worship of God. 
But here's the thing you got to remember. There's never been an innocent person that's been put to death for their sin. There's never been an innocent person. But our children will pick up on the sins that we have, our idolatry that we have, unless by God's grace he intervenes or we repent and show them the risen and reigning Jesus, which is what I would offer up for all of you to consider. To, to not judge the, 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 the scoreboard of your parenting through how well you are knocking it out of the park by appearances sake, but how well you repent. Because that's the true mark. You want to give your children something. Show them how to repent. Show them how to run and make a beeline for Jesus Christ, the one true God, the image of God himself. So parents, just a question for you. What kind of worship are you passing down to your children? How would they describe what is most important to your life? How would they describe your life of worship before God? Children, what kind of worship are you picking up from your parents? The good news of however you answer that is, is that you don't have to be dead in your sin and your trespasses anymore, that you can receive life in Jesus through repentance. And we as a church would love to come alongside you and help you in that, whatever that looks like. But I would beg you not to just sweep this under the rug. Because generations and generations and generations of your descendants are impacted by it. Now, secondly, the good news, the luggage, the things we do like to see at the airport. Listen to the language of luggage and how it's, or blessing rather, how it's exponentially better than the language of cursing. And this is because of who God is. Okay, listen. He shows steadfast love to thousands of those who love me and keep my commands. I want you to notice how the curses or baggage of false worship extend to three or four generations, he says. But look at how the blessing of true worship extends. Thousands of generations. And you know why? Because that's how grace works, church. It doesn't make sense. God is so good that it doesn't make sense to us. Even the smallest bit of obedience and faith in Jesus changes everything. It's not, it's not the, the, the amount of faith that we have. It's the object of our faith that matters. And God does everything with that gift of faith that he gives to us as he raises us from death and gives us life in Jesus Christ. So you might be in here and you might say, you know, I don't really have that much faith. I wouldn't consider myself a really strong Christian. And I would say this, that it doesn't matter how much faith you have. It matters that you have faith. That's the most important thing that we can hand down to our kids. It's that humble pursuit of a life in God that trusts Jesus for life and not ourselves. We can't avoid the baggage that we will pass down to the generations that follow us. All of our kids will be messed up and in counseling to some degree, right? It's just a matter of fact. Sorry, kids. You're going to do it to your kids too. Just what's going to happen. However, in Christ, the ripple effect of our sin will never outpace God's grace. And that's the best news that we can have today. Let's pray together. Our Father, we... Um, we want to offer you the worship that you're owed. God, we know that we will never, ever, ever be able to show you your worth with our worship. But God, we as a church just declare this today. We just want to spend the rest of our lives trying. We want to spend the rest of our lives chasing Jesus who bore our sins on a cross so that we can have life in you through faith. 
That's why the, the, the danger of making images of you is so near to your heart. Because all you want to do is give us Christ and all we want to do is make Christ. God, show us where we're straying. Not so that you can punish us and tell us I told you so, but so that you can love us more deeply, that we would be aware and know it, God. So God, we just, we just turn from those images, from those imaginations, from those thoughts, from those things that we thought would give us only what you could give us. And we just pray that you would satisfy our hearts in the work of Jesus this morning. It's in his name we pray. Amen.